This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. We are looking at substantial healing in the church and uh, it's a, a wonderful subject in the church. The body of Christ does need a lot of healing in many ways and, and um, you know, the church through... Um, the 80s and 90s and what they term the noughties um, uh, was ravaged ravaged by the outworkings of false doctrine and errors um, th- that's not the only period of history where the church has been subject to uh, false doctrine and its effect not, e- not even in the beginning it's just the the history of Christianity down through the ages that um, error seeps in, uh, people hold to those errors and uh, the errors eventually show their outworking in lifestyle and and um, or in adherence to doctrine and belief and that then has its outworking <coughs> as a consequence of that. So by way of a quick, very quick, we're just going to skim through these um, Recollection of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The word ecclesia, where the word church comes from, means this calling out, but it has um, this uh, idea of a sense of direction. It's calling out from and calling out to. And so when you think about that, that makes complete sense. You're called out from sin, called out from the world, and you're called out to uh, uh, um, reach a lost humanity uh, called out to the fellowship of the saints and to be part of that the church is called to glorify God and in doing so demonstrate redeemed humanity in a lost world that's, that's our calling in life is that we would be a demonstration to the world around us of what it means to be redeemed that was my life before this is my life now and uh, this is an important part of the Christian life. And that the emphasis is not upon uh, adherence to a church creed. And, and we mentioned that uh, last week. This demonstration begins with a required biblical unity. Now, biblical unity is not a conformity, as I just mentioned, to a creed. It's not about ticking a set of boxes. And I am very confident if you polled this congregation on uh, any number of secondary or tertiary doctrines, you would find that there are quite a few differences amongst the, the saints here, and yet we're able to dwell together with unity, and this is an important thing. And, and it's because above those Beliefs, actually even above core beliefs, is the issue of love. Core beliefs must still be adhered to with love as the governor of how we behave concerning those core beliefs. And if you want to understand that in more detail, you can take a look at any of the Christian churches that are called control groups. Um, and you can see heavy shepherding in those churches where they can tick a set of boxes. And trust me, this is not something that only belongs to Pentecostal churches. There are Baptist churches and, and all different kinds of uh, churches, genuine believers in their doctrinal value set, that the way they behave, though, is a cult by practice and uh, there's a lot of control of the members uh, and so they're called Christian control groups uh, generally. So um, we also looked at true unity within any local body of believers uh, is about individuals being under Christ's control. So, um, and you know, that's a really important doctrine for us. When believers are not submitted to Christ, a form of spiritual spasticity occurs. The the body begins behaving in an unruly way, and as a result of that, it is unable to bring true glory to the Lord. 
Um, we looked at liberal theologians removing distinctions between saved and lost. They talk about it in a religious sense, and uh, you know, they from that idea has come these notions that people say, "Oh, yeah, I was born a Christian." You, you weren't born a Christian. You were born a human. Uh, but Jesus says that we must be born again. And so this comes down to this idea of this uh, this age of understanding and of comprehending sin and guilt and uh, the association that goes with that and that need for repentance and turning from our sin to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But these, this kind of uh, liberal theology leads to worldliness in the church because people think they're secure because they were born into a religious way of, uh, into a religious mindset, and so they think they're secure, and as a result then, if you are born a Christian, how can you not be a Christian? And so um, that's why Jesus is very specific that we should be born again. So what we ask the question, what should the church be? And you notice the word consciously in there. What should the church consciously be? What should we knowingly be? And uh, and we talked about that it should be that which encourages its members in the true Christian life, in true spirituality. And that's that is going to mean that from from time to time, the Bible is confronting you and I with long-held traditions and long-held beliefs. And and when we get down to studying it in its context, that it's challenging us in that way, bringing them forward. And we go through this time of being a bit uncomfortable while we work out what the Scripture is actually teaching us. As one man said, the truth will set you free. But first, it'll make you uncomfortable. So, uh, you know... It, there's a, there is great awkwardness to biblical truth many times because we we hold on to things with such relish that that being you know that that finding ourselves questioning that can often feel like we're we're stepping out on a limb uh, into the unknown and so uh, we want to encourage people to be free in this present life from the bonds of sin and to be free from the, the results of those bonds. Now that sounds like the same statement, but to be free from the bonds of sin is to be born again. When you're born again, you are freed from the bonds of sin. They they have no hold over you anymore. But how many know that uh, that you and I get some behaviours because of our sin? We have some carryovers in our personalities and various different things and sometimes these carry over into the Christian life and they are the results of what we were beforehand uh, the things we learned and the things we had entreated ourselves to behave like beforehand uh, giving in and yielding to our own pleasures all the time and then when the Christian life comes along we're confronted with the life of discipline uh, and various different changes that need to be made and um, we talked about this some time back that that in our state of sin there's this separation within us there there is a breakdown within man's psychology and uh, that breakdown is not only within the individual but it's within our society as well um, and it, it's magnified in the world we're, we're in today where we see um, you know multiplied numbers of children, being born into single families, for example, single parent families, where the the breakdown of marriage relationships has just become so normal that now nobody even bats an eye uh, to consider that somebody got divorced or to consider that a child was born out of wedlock. It's just not even something that society even thinks about anymore. This is how far sin has separated us from what God intended for men to be uh, individually, as communities, and also even as believers. So there was obviously quite a lot more than that that we talked about. Let's move on into Romans chapter 12. And we'll read verses 1 and 2 
as well as through to 3 to 5, which is where we're focused. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Now, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the love you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel by which we've been saved through faith. We thank you, Lord, that as Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We praise you for this. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to walk in obedience to you, bringing glory to you all the days of our lives. Amen. Hallelujah. So we are one body in Christ and that body has individual members, you know. Um, so we could be obvious and we could say that that's different nationalities, for example, and you can take a look around and, you know, there's some Anglo-Saxons here and there's some African uh, people and there's some people from the subcontinent as well uh, there in India and Asia. Uh, different places. So, you know, you can look at it from that aspect that, that we're in Christ, you and I bring our differences, but there are many differences and those are not necessarily what Paul is talking about when he writes to the Roman church. He's not talking about these cultural, uh, and, and social differences. What he's talking about is that you and I in the body of Christ each have different functions for the body of Christ. And that's the important part that we remember that that you and I as individual believers have different functions for the body of Christ. And some are called to lead and teach, and some are called to serve, some are called to give, some are called to help, uh, some are called to encourage, all these kinds of things that you and I uh, are gifted with in Christ Jesus. These giftings, when we yield and when we submit to the Lord, these bring great healing to the body of Christ because we're functioning under the unction and the leading of the Holy Spirit in order to bring what the Word of God is revealing to our lives, to other believers' lives. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14 says, For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. Now, if you took the anglicized word baptized out of there and just put immersed uh, in, because the Greek word simply means to immerse uh, in verse 13 for by one spirit we were immersed into one body he is not talking about water baptism as a means of being brought into the body of christ he is talking about being born again and that when we're born again the spirit of god places us into the body of Christ. That is a work of his spirit and not a work of, uh, of our own doing. So, we have two distinct truths that Jesus rose physically from the dead and that the church was born at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit was sent by the Lord as he ascended and he said to the disciples, don't fret, you know, and unless I go, the Spirit of God can't come down. And uh, and this beginning of the 
age or the dispensation of the church began at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon believers. And then from that time onward, all believers that place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has joined them into the body of Christ. So, that's where we're at. Well, we'd be excited if we were the perfect church, wouldn't we? You know, no one sang out of tune and the children are seen but not heard. Do we emphasize that one or should we, should we move on? So, the pastor knows it all. I've been called an old before, but I don't think I know it all. No one ever has a bad hair day. Dress nicely and bring your wallet. We, you know, we, we can emphasize that. You know? We could, we could get modern and, and, uh, get one of those FPOS machines and pass that around and, uh, you know. The perfect church, isn't it? So, but, there, there is really no such thing as the perfect church. It's, it's a myth. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter if the statement of faith is watertight and the constitution is rock solid, um, you know, doesn't matter if the church has a hundred years of history and has got everything down to, you know, a um, just a, a streamlined, perfect, uh, you know, um, liturgy each week. The perfect church is a myth. That that's it right there. It's just it's gone. Let it let it blow up in our heads because you and I are here, so it's not perfect. All right. Sorry to bring us all down, but, you know, we're here so the church is not perfect. So we have said that the church should be teaching freedom from the bonds of sin and freedom from these results of the bonds of sin, and that substantial healing in a variety of profound areas concerning self and others is where true spirituality brings us to. It brings us to these areas of healing in our lives as we live the genuine Christian life. And this is a challenge to you and I over time because our hearts are so easily corrupted. Our hearts are so easily given to behaviors that that are wrong and, and uh, you know, we, we can so easily begin to um, uh, behave in ways that, that affect or offend other people. But if we are not providing an environment that is conducive to these things of, of freedom from the bonds of sin, you know, getting people saved and, and providing an environment where people then are overcoming the results of the bonds of their sin. In, in other words, if our preaching is not confronting you with the, the fruit of the Spirit in your life and where your life is at and helping you to grow and develop toward that so that you're exhibiting the nature and the character of Jesus to the world around you, we're falling short as a church. So, three things the church is to do. The church is to teach truth. The church is to teach a practice of the presence of God. And, and I'm not talking about that brother, whatever his name is. Who was it? Brother Lawrence. That's such a mystical, very Catholic book, The Practice of the Presence of God. Very uh, mystical along that way. You probably want to read a little more of, if you want more theologically attuned rather than Catholic mystical kind of thing, you probably want to read stuff by Tozer and... and um, um, uh, Oswald Sanders and these guys about their meditations and their their time that they spent with God and and 
read the scriptures and see how Jesus went alone to be with the Lord early in the morning, as was his custom to spend time alone with God in prayer. The church is also to live and exhibit God's character of holiness and love. Because that's what everyone says about church, don't they? All these unbelievers, you know, oh, that community is just such a loving community, you know. You, you very seldom hear the world say those kinds of things. It does happen from time to time that, that communities will say, I'm not a Christian, but that church has done remarkable things in this community. Um, because they're living out their faith, you know, living it out in the community. So you and I, though, cannot merely as a church teach on these things. We have to practice these things. We can't just talk about the teachings and the theology and we can't just talk about this practice of the presence of God and you know this need for personal discipline and personal meditations and we we can't just talk about living an exhibition of God's character it has to be lived can faith be taught it can in a sense you can teach about it But it's when someone's life hits a certain point and they reach out to God, they're going to find faith in that situation. And so it's when you and I live our lives together as a community and we we exhibit the faith we're professing and we trust the Lord and we see Him uh, working and helping us, moving us along and growing us, that this becomes something that then teaches by demonstration. The best thing parents can do for their children is to live their Christian faith. Don't be that kind of person that when you get back to your address and the front door is closed, that what is lived inside is entirely different to what you put on show when you come to church on Sunday morning. My dad... His brothers, two brothers, and his sister, from the day each of them left their father's house, other than going to weddings and funerals and maybe the odd religious event, never went to church again uh, because he was an, an abhorrent hypocrite. Don't, you can't expect to pass on something to your children that you don't live. And so our, our faith, I mean, at the very first point, who cares so much about church? That's, a, that's great that we can come together and we can have fellowship. But in your family, how do you live in your family? What is your conduct within your family? What is the example you set? And even possibly before you sit down and and read scripture, how do you behave with your family? How do you talk to your spouse? How do you talk to your children? What about when they approach you? Is it always an angry response? Because... When our example does not match what we proclaim, we believe, it becomes destructive. So many children have grown up and, and, uh, you know, we'll we'll use the common term, left the church. Um, They may not have been born again. That's that's not even the discussion I'm having, but they've gone away from Christianity with anger and bitterness because they will, and many of them attribute it directly back to their own parents. Huh. They were hypocrites. And it becomes destructive in that way. But if we live what we're proclaiming, that becomes constructive. 
Oh, look, it's, it's not going to um, remove every confrontation. In fact, you may come into more confrontations when you live your biblical faith. But it's going to be constructive in many other ways because it's going to provide a testimony and a reference point. As believers, we also are to teach the present meaning of the work of Christ. And we've talked about that quite a bit in the earlier lessons, that what Christ accomplished for us at the cross continues in your life today. And we're to live as a body of believers this truth. You know, the the Christian life does not just happen. God forbid that we should have um, a system whereby we can, uh, you know, uh, an example might be when I was a, when I was a young teenager and um, I uh, had this um, experience with some Christians and and as a result. Um, you know, I was led through a sinner's prayer and patted on the back and told, you know, you're a Christian now, you're going to go to heaven. Um, you know, who doesn't want to go to heaven? Uh, so that was that was a happy day. Uh, started going to church, was puzzled by much of the experience with that because this is a small country town and there were um, very few churches in that town and they were extremely religious um, and the minister was uh, of one of the main ones uh, at Church of England was was uh, a drunkard, um, uh, unfortunately. Um, but I went and approached him about getting baptised because someone said I should get baptised, and and uh, he said, "Are you a member?" And I said, "No, I've just become a Christian." And so he said, "Well, you'll need to do the confirmation classes first, and then be become a member." Um, and stuff, and I said, I just want to get baptized because the Bible says, believe and be baptized. Just you know, I was a, I was a kid, I was a, I was 13 years old, and, and stuff. Now, in some ways, I'm kind of thankful for that because later on, when I got baptized, it meant something to me. You know, um, Francis Schaeffer said these wonderful words: God does not deal with us automatically. So it's not the same for everyone. It's not just put the car in D for drive for all of us. God deals with you individually, right? And you have to remember that because he's a loving father. And just like any parent who, who, as Paul writes that about husbands, that we should understand them, uh, our wives, carefully take, take a you know, have a, a mindful understanding of your spouse. In the same way, God has a mindful understanding of you as his child, just as you should have of your children. Every Christian group must function moment by moment by conscious choice on the basis of the work of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. What a, what a one, that's a, that is a deep statement right there. That is a very deep statement. Every Christian group must function moment by moment by conscious choice on the basis of the work of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. One person once said that the book of Acts is about the evangelism of the world, the spread of the gospel throughout the world by the early church through the power of the Holy Spirit by simple faith in what God had commanded them to do. It is not that the group just calls itself, uh, its individuals to so live, but that the group as a group so lives. You know, in other words, we're not just saying, yay, believe thus and live thus, but you and I as individuals are to live that way. We're, we're to embrace this truth and live it. It is death to think that things are going to come automatically just because of past legal decisions, even though they were right. You may have made certain choices in your life 
that does not mean that there's going to be automatically a certain outcome. And it's death to think that way. Right? There must be the present choice, a moment-by-moment choice, a conscious choice of operating on the basis of the work of Christ. Let's think for a moment about a married couple. (coughs) That married couple, they are at the height of emotions prior to that wedding day. They love each other. She's marrying him because she thinks she can change him and he's marrying her because he thinks she'll never change. And uh, they, they, they both find out the opposite very soon. And what happens then is their love is tested. Their real love because they made a commitment to one another at that altar that they would, forsaking all others, cleave to each other. They, they made a commitment at that altar that they would love one another in the good times and the bad times, the difficult times. Until when? Death. Death. Not until 5.30 or, uh, you know, not until the children are out of school, you know. We're staying together till the children are adults. You know, what, what kind of a selfish thing is that? That's not what marriage is a call to. Marriage is a call to be married. It's a call to love each other and that love has far less to do with emotion than it has to do with action. I just don't feel it anymore. Then live it. Live it. And let God bring you to a place of repentance of your hard heart. And live it. Because that's the basis of this. You can't just go on a vow that was said in 1985. Oh yeah, we made that commitment at the altar. And about 20 years ago it died. You can't just go on that. Oh, you know, yeah, oh, we were starry-eyed. Then, then reality set in. It's going to set in for everybody. And that's the, that is the basis of being called to love one another is love in essence of that word is a sacrificial word. It's a word that requires you and I to put aside our feelings, put aside our emotions and do what is right. So God doesn't just, you know, just because we say a prayer and ask Jesus into our heart, he doesn't just cause the church to, you know, just to be what it's supposed to be. It's not an automatic thing, you know. That's that's not how it happens. Once we get saved, genuinely saved by the hearing of the gospel and, and, and faith is produced in our hearts through that gospel message and we place our trust in Jesus Christ, once we get saved... It's not just an automatic thing that we're going to move on from there. You and I must continue to work at our Christian lives. You can't live presently on the basis of past achievements. That's what Paul called dung. He said, you know, everything that I've done in my past, all of those achievements, everything I had become, I count all of that as dung for the value of knowing Christ. There was a man who could have lauded his past achievements. The multiple languages that he spoke, the incredible rhetoric and philosophy that he could reason with people. You know, Paul was a masterly educated person. He could have paraded his knowledge before people. But he said, it's all, that's all rubbish. Translated to today's vernacular, crap. Or spelt with a capital K. Help the Dutchies understand it. Put a K on there. So in order for the church to be what it's supposed to be, each of us as believers must embrace what it means to be a Christian. Live that life, moment 
by moment, there's no guarantee, oh, yesterday I had the prayer meeting to end all prayer meetings, and so I'm not going to pray anymore. You know, it's, it won't happen that way. It's to be lived day by day, moment by moment. You know, you'll have a blessed time in prayer and in the scripture and walk out the door and someone treats you harshly. And right there, you're going to be confronted with living as a Christian in that moment. Right in that moment. Oh, hang on, man. I'm just reveling in the glory of God. Shut up. I'm reveling in the glory of God. You know, it's, it won't happen that way. You have to live that Christian life. The church is to teach the duty of exhibiting God's existence and personal nature. And the corporate body is to live on the basis of this truth. So when we say the church, we're talking about the individual believers. When we gather together as well, we should be exhibiting the existence of God and exhibiting His nature. That's why a church that is fighting and bickering and gossiping and slandering is anathema to God. That's, that is totally the opposite to how it should be. Now there is a cost in this because if you're going to live as a Christian you're going to pay a price. In words and in deeds the church must demonstrate God's existence by a lifestyle of holiness, communication and love. And you see this is the problem with Um, let's say, for example, a, a list of church standards, you know. Um, and th- this becomes a really difficult area for churches to administer. You know, we don't want anyone to come to church naked, for example. Um, but we don't need a dress code that has a three-piece suit requirement with a tie. In fact, it should be a black suit and a white shirt. No black tie, red tie, the blood of Christ. You know, you know. So somewhere in between overt nudity and and sensual dressing and that legalistic standard, somewhere in between that is a standard of living and dressing that can glorify God. Does that does that make sense? You know, in in the middle there somewhere is something that glorifies God. But you see, holiness without love always leads to legalism, always leads to judgmentalism. That always happens. But love without holiness leads to a lack of discernment and it leads to a... Uh, a fleshly liberty. Communication without love will be harsh. It also can be a, a soppy sentiment when it when it doesn't have love because love will guide that communication and though a difficult thing may have to be said, It can be said from the right motive. There must be a demonstration both inside and outside the church. As we go from this gathering of saints, there has to be a demonstration of the reality of the life of Christ in our lives when we go from here. Does that make sense? Therefore, unless a church group consciously seeks freedom from the bonds of sin and freedom from the results of those bonds, we we should be teaching people about the 
the painful hangovers of, of a life of sin before knowing Christ and and about how the scripture teaches the overcoming of those things. You know, Paul was so practical with this when he writes to the Ephesians and is writing into this culture where there was a lot of laziness and stuff. And he tell, he says to them, you know, let he who stole steal no longer. Don't rely on pilfering for your income. In fact, then he goes on and he says, in fact, work and earn your keep. Work and earn your keep. You should not be relying upon the charity of others or relying on stealing. And take it a little step further to temper your heart. Once you've worked and earned your keep, also lay aside a little bit so that you can help someone else in need. See, Paul is dealing with the results of the bonds of sin in that. Because someone who, through their sin, had become a thief and was relying on that, may find it very hard to find stable employment. Of course, this is on the basis of the finished work of Christ. This is not about our own achievements. Look at me. I once was a thief and now I've had a job for 10 years. Look at how good I am. This is not about our achievement. This is about the power of the Spirit of God and about you and I living by faith. In this way, your job can be a place in which you can minister greatly to the people around you by living your Christian faith. Whether you work for yourself and you witness in that opportunity or whether you work for somebody else and you live the Christian life in that situation, Your life becomes a demonstration of the power of God. But we cannot teach any of this with integrity, either by words or demonstration, unless we are consciously seeking for this to be so. This is how we should be, you know, attempting to be. So we can't teach this with integrity unless we're seeking this to be the case. How can we really expect individual believers to take these things seriously if we are unconcerned with this? If we're unconcerned with holiness, we can't expect it to be a surprise if the church becomes filled with sin. Why would that be a surprise? But the answer to that is not to preach legalistic holiness. The answer to that is that we would preach the nature and the character of God and the life of Christ in the individual believer and that you and I respond to that rightly and live for his glory. Without that, all relationships will struggle. So... Our methods are important as a church and as believers. They're as important as the message, in fact. The liberal theologians that came out of the Enlightenment period who who talked down the fundamental nature of the word of God Uh, they did away with aspects of the character of God that scripture taught Uh, they did away with um, the teaching about the indwelling uh, of the Holy Spirit some of the the liberal theologies of the day Um, they denied the supernatural uh, as they as they did away with the teachings of the Holy Spirit they denied the supernatural they denied the triunity of the Godhead um, all these kinds of things and the result of this was the church became this very um, carnal 
uh, organization in which religion was handed down generation by generation, uh, overemphasizing certain doctrines that proved you were a Christian, uh, these kinds of things. And so we, we're opposing that kind of teaching. We're pushing back against that kind of teaching all the time because you and I need to be careful that we're not, that we don't just embrace some form of tradition or religion as a, as a proof. You know, celebrating communion together does not prove anyone's a believer. It doesn't make you more or less of a believer, in fact. These kinds of things. And, and so, you know, um, when you elevate these out of their correct proportion, you end up with the, the doctrine of transubstantiation, for example, in which you somehow are led to believe that that, that bread, or maybe not that bread because it wasn't sanctified in the proper manner by the proper priest, but um, uh, but it becomes the actual body of Christ when you eat it. That's a thought for you, you know. It's a it's a demonic demonic teaching. I'll put it like this. Imagine when you woke up this morning, everything in your Bible that it has to say about prayer and the Holy Spirit was removed. Imagine that's all gone out of your Bible. The question is, what difference would that make in practice from the way you are living functionally? What difference would that make to you? Would we function differently as a result? I I can tell you that the simple and sad and tragic fact is that much of the proclaiming evangelical church would not be at all altered by the absence of such teachings. Much of the supposed evangelical church. People who who tick boxes just like you and I have in a statement of faith that they believe these things are living as though they are not there already. There are many believers who are in that camp that that the 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 promise of Acts one verse eight you shall receive power once the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. That Take that verse out and it won't change a thing. Because they're not living as if it's true already. You see, it's the Lord's work done in the Lord's way. And this concerns more than just the message this morning. I can't remember if it's Hudson Taylor or um, or Sanders who used to say that that saying, "The Lord's work done in the Lord's way." Um, you know that this was the vital the vital thing in the Christian life. This is not only relating to the message; it relates to the method as well. It's the message coupled with the method. I want to close with some thoughts here about three universal promises to the church regarding the Holy Spirit. Don't get scared. Three universal promises to the church. Universal in that these promises are for the entire body of genuine believers. So it's not just a promise to cornerstone. It's not actually a promise to any brand name church, right? 
for, for sake of some other label. This is a promise to all genuine believers throughout the history of the age of the church. Firstly, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church receives power to be witnesses to the surrounding world. We just mentioned Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. Now, the the word then is not in Acts 1 verse 8, but it's implied in the text. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses, is kind of the implication of the passage, you know. Because prior to that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord is saying to them, you know, then you're going to have the power to be witnesses to the end of the world. The word witness used in the New Testament is the Greek word martus, and it's where you get the word martyr from. And so, you know, the uh, the Lord is saying there to the church, not necessarily that you shall receive power and then you'll be able to knock on doors. You know, you shall receive power and you'll be able to stand on a box and preach on the street. Maybe. Maybe, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you're going to be ready to die. Now, he's not necessarily talking about being martyred for the faith to death, but this is where the word comes from. But he is saying that once the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be able to live in such a way that you are going to be able to die to self to be this testimony to the world around you. That is going to be because of the Holy Spirit in your life. In other words, you and I as believers should not attempt to be witnesses in our own power. The Holy Spirit is here to help you. He's here to guide you and strengthen you. I don't know if I say this to him, he'll never be my friend again. Is it true? Is it needed? Then so be it. You're dying to yourself. You're being that witness. So, universal promise number one is power for being a witness to the world. The second universal promise is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers results in his fruit coming forth. I love that passage in Galatians. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, gentleness, which is translated kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. I, uh, I These are the characteristics. Mums and dads, if your daughters are interested in a guy, firstly, he should be born again. Secondly, look for these characteristics. And I tell you, it it is a really important thing for a, a man to be kind. Kindness is not weakness. It's not it's not a softness. To be kind is this caring and, and consideration of others. To take harshness out of one's character and to show kindness to those in need is such a beautiful characteristic. If we've accepted Christ, we are to live in the Spirit. Also, Paul says, but let us also walk in the Spirit. This is the ongoing, this is that moment by moment living of the Christian life. 
The fruit of the Spirit are not some special thing. They are the universal promise given to the church. So number two, the active result of the fruit of the Spirit. John 14, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Praise the Lord. The third promise. Between his ascension and his return, Christ is with the church through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He hasn't abandoned the church. He will always be with the church. That's John 14. These are universal promises to the church that he is always with all believers. Uh, you know, some of those infuriating Pentecostals back in the, in the 80s, we don't need doctrine, we've got the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. And if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, getting down to issues of cessationism and stuff, that's a separate discussion. But we don't have time for that. So the question is, do we see universally this promise in our church as believers? And let's bring it down to our church, us. Do we see the fruit of the Spirit in us? Do we live this life, understanding that the Holy Spirit is with us now. He's, he has seen and heard every discussion we've had here this morning. He's hearing this. Do we live this way? This is the question for us because these are really, these are universal truths that He will give you power to be a witness. In your life, it's a universal truth. Are we seeing this as a church? Do we see this within our own lives as well? So, these three universal points. There is a huge distinction between men building a church, I don't mean a physical church, I mean attempting to build a church, and between Christ building his church. Jesus declared that he will build his church and he continues building that church. That church exists not on the basis of of this mental assent to a creed or anything. I don't know if I've emphasized that particular point enough. It exists on the basis of this here. That between his ascension and his return, he is the life of the church. He is the life of the individual. This is his word. And his word preached without, without his authority is just religion. You know, there's all kinds of things that churches struggle with. And uh, Turn to Second Samuel chapter 6 and, you know, you can... Uh, take time to read the, the chapter uh, later on for yourself. Um, verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. God struck him down. There. God struck him down there. Right there. Because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. I, Simon will probably recall as well being at a conference in which a, a man preached. He'd been heavily influenced by the um, uh, Pensacola revival or the Toronto revival, one of those two her- heretical movements. And uh, he preached on the ark of God uh, uh, coming into, uh, being brought into the, the, the town by this method that they brought it in on the, on the cart and as the oxen stumbled and Uzzah touched it, uh, God killed him. And the reason being is that uh, Uzzah was resisting the move of God, was the way it was described. It was in total insanity. Then he rolled up his sleeves and said, let's get down to business. You know, And, and he was trying to bring in this... Um, heretical practices into the church about the new move of God. Totally the, the oldest trick in the book. Take a passage out of scripture, use it as a proof text for his pretext. When the priests were prescribed by God to carry that ark in a certain way, it wasn't to be touched by human hand. It was supposed to be carried in a certain way and transported from one place to another, not put on a cart and towed by a donkey. Now this is an important point in Samuel because we learn out of this that if these points are true, Let's trust God. Let's trust God in simplicity. Trust Him in the simplicity of your life. Is your, is your marriage struggling? The answer is not like that. The answer is for you to live the Christian life and trust God. But what if she leaves me? That's on her. That's a hard lesson. It's on her. <clears throat> you live that Christian life. What is God dealing with you about? You live that Christian life. What if he continues to be a pig? You live the Christian life. Bring it down into the practical areas of your Christian life. Live in such a way that the glory of God can be exhibited in your life without interference. God, I'm going to help you out here. You know, you're not going to help God out. He knows what to do. He's given the prescription already. Let's just live that life that will bring forth and that will show forth the supernatural presence of God in our lives. And let's get, let God be the Lord of our lives. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, there's still a little more that I, I want to go, but, um, uh, we, we just close with this. The church has the objective standard of the Word of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now we must learn to walk moment by moment yielded to Christ. This is where we have been working towards in all these lessons, is coming down to this this living of the Christian life in practical reality. In practical reality. Mums and dads teaching your children in the Word of God, but then living it yourself. You know, parents are very quick to say, children, obey your parents. But you have to live as people who are under the headship of Christ as well, in your lives. Obey Him. Behave as Christians to each other. And your children will have so much, find it so much easier to obey you. 
because they will see that in your life. Doesn't mean they won't rebel, but it will take away that stumbling block from them. This is really practical, practical, practical stuff for us. We'll close there. I just want to just want to go a little bit further, but um, we'll we'll finish this slide off here. <laughs> this is where prayer is the engine room of the church. Christ is to be the head of the church. And that begins with leaders and members maintaining brotherhood in the body of Christ. Hallelujah. We'll come back to that slide next week and start off from there. Next time in two weeks. Next week, Simon's going to be, uh, going to be preaching. He's going to be the everything man next week. Chris is away. I'm away. And, um, so he's going to, He's going to bring a, uh, a word from God for you. So, um, yeah, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's close in a word of prayer here this morning. Thanks for being here with us and um, uh, this morning. And, and, you know, thanks to everyone who, who helps out. It's such a joy for us, um, Suzanne and I, to be able to go away uh, this week and have a little bit of a break and just know that uh, the men and women of Cornerstone are just pitching in and helping out and it's just such a blessing. So uh, you guys are amazing. Now, Father, we thank you this morning and we just praise you for the love you've shown us in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for these universal promises, that indwelling of the Spirit, Father, that provides a power for us to be martyrs for you, Lord God, that fruit that is naturally produced by the life of Christ in our lives. Help us, Lord God, that we would walk moment by moment with you, that that fruit might be displayed, Lord. Help us, Father God, that each day we would walk in such a way to bring glory to your name, Lord. And help us to remember that you are with us in the Holy Spirit until the end of this church age, whenever that may be. Father, we have this sense that the times are coming rapidly to a close and that these final movements of yours in Scripture are going to soon come to pass. Help us to live in such a way that in these days we would greatly glorify you for the advancement of the gospel. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.